Welcome to Purdue Commercial AgCast, the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture's podcast featuring farm management news and information. I'm your host, Jim Minter, Director of the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture, and joining me today is Michael Langemeyer, Professor of Ag Economics here at Purdue. We're going to review the results from the August Purdue University CME Group Ag Economy Barometer Survey of farmers from across the nation. Each month, we survey 400 farmers from across the U.S. to learn more about their perspective on the ag economy. And this month's Ag Economy Barometer Survey was conducted from the 23rd through the 27th of August. So, Michael, looking at the results, we saw a very small change in the Ag Economy Barometer. It moved up four points to a reading of 138. That was up from 134 last month. Still leaves us quite a ways below where we were last spring when we had some readings up in the high 160s and even broke through, I think, 171 month. What's your take? Yes, I think prices are still below what they were back in, in May, for example. And so I think that's part of the reason why, specifically corn and soybean prices, I think that's one of the reasons why we are lower today uh, than what we were back in May. Uh, it did pick up a little bit, though. And, and, and uh, uh, as you said in the report, Jim, I think one of the factors was some timely rains uh, in the Corn Belt and, and Plains. And so I, I think that helped a little bit. And I think weather conditions and, and crop conditions in particular are going to be very important as we move forward to September. October, November, uh, talking about the Ag Economy Barometer Index. That's a good point, because when you look under the hood and, and uh, look at the index of current conditions and the index of future expectations, the biggest driver of that small improvement was really the index of current conditions. That rose from a reading of 143 last month to a reading of 152 this month. And you know, even though prices are lower than they were back in May, I think people probably did feel a little bit better about their revenue prospects in corn and soybean country, particularly because of some improvement in maybe yield expectations. Um, and those prices, you know, when you compare to a year ago, they're still much stronger than a year ago. So there is still that perspective as well. Um, and we did also see some stronger livestock prices. Uh, there's not a huge percentage of the survey uh, response group each month that's comprised of livestock producers. I think on the beef side, we're about roughly 19% of the respondents have a beef enterprise. and on the swine side, about 6%. So we've got some stronger prices in, in both of those industries as well. So there's some strength coming there. But it was a little bit surprising maybe to see as much strength as we did in that index of current conditions. And One of the things that's really interesting to me about comparing the index of current conditions, the index of future expectations, uh, for, for, for uh probably the sixth, seventh month in a row, if not a little longer than that. I think this even goes back to late uh, 2020. The index of current conditions is above the index of future expectations. And, and so what's going on there, I think, is 2021 looks like it's going to be a really good year, particularly for crop producers. As we move past 2021, things don't look bad. Uh, that's why we've seen, it's seen a, a relatively strong index of future expectations, certainly stronger than what we saw last year at this time. Um, but they're not as good uh, as what they look in 2021. So I think that was interesting. Another thing that was uh, uh, that was interesting to me, if you look at the uh, the, the percentage of crop crop uh, percentage of respondents that think crop uh, crop enterprises are going to be uh, have good times in the next five years, and the percentage that think livestock enterprises are going to have good times in the next five years, it's very close to one another. That hasn't been the case in recent months, and so as you indicated, Jim, I think uh, the improvement in livestock prices certainly helped uh, the index of current conditions. Yeah, I think that was a factor. And even though it's not a huge portion of our survey population, it was definitely a change from earlier in the year. 
Um, if you look at the Farm Financial Performance Index, we saw some strength there. Obviously, that correlates pretty strongly, I think, with what we saw in the Index of Current Conditions. In fact, one of the reasons why people are feeling better about current conditions is they're feeling better about their farm's financial situation. So that index rose to a reading of 110. That was up from 99 last month and up from 96 two months ago. That still leaves that index below where it was this spring. Back in May, it was at 126. Back in April, it was 138. So people aren't feeling as good about uh, things with respect to financial performance as they were back then. Of course, that's when we were at our peak on corn and soybean prices. We've seen a substantial amount of weakness in those corn and soybean prices, in particular here the last couple of weeks. And the survey probably picked up part of that. But it's interesting that people felt in round terms, round numbers, about 10% better about their farm's financial performance this month. And I think that goes back to, uh, you know, some uh, timely rains, uh, you know, in the Corn Belt and the, and the Plains. I, I think that, that that creates more optimism. And as we get closer to harvest, particularly those that are looking at pretty good uh, crop yields, uh, that that's going to create some strength. Farm Capital Investment Index, not much of a change, a very small one. It went to 53 from 50 last month, so a small improvement. Um, you know, the investment index is, is, I think, plagued by a little bit of uncertainty with respect to availability. Uh, that's one of the things I think is maybe kind of hovering behind that index. If you look at the small improvement that we saw this month, it really came about because of an improvement uh, with respect to people's perspective about constructing buildings and grain bins. Um, the percentage of producers planning to reduce their construction this year uh, in the upcoming 12 months compared to a year earlier dropped back to 59%, and that was 67% in July, and that was really the biggest change. That one plus the, well, we flipped those people from uh, reducing construction to holding construction constant. That rose to 33% from 24% in July, and then the percent of producers planning to increase construction was really almost no change. It went, uh, I think, to 8% from 9%. On the farm machinery purchase side, there was really no change at all. So all the change really was on the construction side. But I think, you know, one of the things that we're kind of seeing behind the scenes, and there were some news stories about it this week, talking about the fact that, you know, a lot of interest uh, with respect to the automobile sector having trouble because of supply chain issues. The ag machinery industry is having those same kinds of issues, and, and it's pretty broad-based. It's not just chips. I was talking to uh, somebody in the industry earlier this week, and they mentioned that uh, and for one of their firms that they were working with, one of the big holdups was tires, uh, which surprised me. So there's a lot of issues in that supply chain, uh, maybe holding back some of those purchase plans, and I think maybe making that index a little weaker than it would be if, if products were more readily available. What do you think? I, I definitely concur with that, with that, Jim. I think the percentage that would plan to either uh, construct buildings or grain bins, or particularly grain bins, but also to purchase farm machinery would be higher uh, if we would, weren't dealing some, with some of the shortages and, and, uh, and logistical problems with, with uh, some of the parts. Uh, lumber and and, and 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 other parts for for machinery. I, I think that really is uh, keeping that keeping that percentage that are expecting to increase uh, their purchases down. So, last few months now, we've been asking people about their expectation with respect to change in farm input prices, and the responses have been interesting. The first time we asked this question was in June. We repeated it in July, and now again here in August. And we saw a change this month. There was a l much higher percentage of people expecting a pretty big increase in farm input prices over the next uh, year. And to be more specific about that, the group that says that they expect farm input prices to rise by 8% or more jumped from 30% uh, 
and that was on both the, the uh, June and July surveys, to 39% this month. So that was a pretty big move. Um, I'm not surprised that we have a lot of people expecting some fairly big increases in farm input prices. I am a little surprised at the jump that we saw from July to August. What's your take? Yes, I, was, I wasn't expecting that large a jump. And, and just, just to reiterate, Jim, if we look at the last 10 years, the average increase uh, in farm input prices has been less than 2%. And we've got close to 40% of the respondents saying that we're seeing something above 8%. And 21% above 12%. So some, so a lot of uncertainty related to farm input prices, and that's, that has to be in, impacting uh, asset purchases. Yeah, and, and some of those input price increases, people already know they're out there. And the big one that people talk to us a lot about is fertilizer prices, right? Those prices have been strong all year and really didn't show any kind of a summer slump to speak of. Um, and, and going into fall, I think there's an expectation that we're going to see some pretty tight supplies and pretty tight, uh, pretty strong prices. So we're already seeing some of that. Uh, of course, this is the time of year when a lot of seed corn sales are being made and uh, seed soybeans being locked in. So we'll know more about these input prices here in the next few weeks. But um, clearly, people are concerned about the margin issue, right? Uh, we're seeing somewhat weaker output prices uh, on the crop side uh, relative to what we saw back in uh, April and May. And now we're seeing these relatively strong increases starting to show up with respect to input. So people are worried a little bit about the margins uh, that they're going to be seeing going forward. So farmland value expectations, uh, pretty strong. Uh, both the short-term index and the long-term index rose by four points this month. And I, I don't want to make too big a deal about the month-to-month -month movement in these uh, farmland value indexes. I think the key point is that both of them are hovering near not exactly at, but pretty close to the all-time highs in both of these indexes, right? Yeah, we certainly safe to say there's a lot of optimism with regard to the farmland market, and I think I think that optimism is warranted uh, when you look at the low interest rates, the uh, the the, uh, the probability of having higher than higher inflation than we've seen for a while, the strong crop returns. All of those things translate into upward pressure on on farmland values. Yeah, and, and if you look at the index now uh, here in, in August of 2021 versus August of 2020, the change is pretty remarkable, right? A year ago, that short-term farmland value expectation index was at 95. This month, it was at 146. And, you know, we're seeing that. We just, uh, had, you and I did the webinar with Todd Keithy a few weeks ago, uh, looking at land values from the land value survey that Purdue conducted in the month of June. And those values in Indiana were up uh, from June to June, 12 to 14 percent, and expectations for further increases the rest of the year. So I think, you know, the, the index is reflecting reality, and uh, this rally in farmland values is probably not over based on what we're seeing, right? That's definitely the case. And, and again, as you said, Jim, it's both short-term and long-term. Uh, typically, long-term, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the index does not change as much as it would short-term, as you'd expect. But there's a lot of confidence, even in, in farmland values going out five years, which is what the long-term farmland value expect expectations index is, is, uh, is tracking. Uh, and it's in August, it's close to the record. Yeah, and I, if you compare those two indices, the one difference is we've seen a big rebound in that short-term value expectation index compared to this time last year. Um, there's a rebound as well in that longer-term index, but as you point out, it was never nearly as negative. Uh, it was always much more positive. Even last year, at the height of the pandemic uh, concerns, it was stronger last year than it was than the, than the short-term index.
Um, we've been asking people about cash rental uh, values, uh, particularly corn and soybean producers. We've been asking about that going back to May, asking them what they think the uh, farmland cash rental rates will be in the 2022 crop season versus the 2021 crop season. And there has been somewhat of a shift, uh, particularly when you compare results these last couple of months to May. In May, people were really thinking that these um, cash rental rates were really going to take off. I think 43% of the people that expected to see an increase in rates, which was about half of the survey, said they thought the increase would be 10% or more. Um, people aren't quite that bullish about what's going to take place now. They've dropped back this month, I think, uh, of the, again, among the people that expect to see a rise in rates, a third, 33% of them say the rates are going to go up 10% or more. Um, Michael, you've looked at cash rental rates a lot, especially here in Indiana. How often do we see a 10% increase or more in farmland cash rental rates? It's a lot rarer than it is with land values. If you look at land values uh, since 2007, for example, there's been six different times uh, in Indiana where, where uh, land, land values have went up over 10% uh, in, 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 a, in a single year. That's only three times for cash rent. So it's a little rare to see these large increases in cash rent. Uh, one of the things that's, that's very safe to say when you look at the results with respect to cash rents is the bears have left the room. Uh, I think there's only one or two percent that think cash rents are going to be lower uh, of the 400 uh, people we surveyed in the last two or three months. And so there just is nobody bearish uh, when it comes to cash rents. It seems like about half think that cash rents are going to be stable and about half think that cash rents are going to be be higher. Uh, but just the fact that there's a of those that think cash rents could be higher, a third are thinking 10 percent or more. That's quite remarkable. We have not seen that uh, in the life of this uh, doing this survey uh, with respect to, uh, you know, the ag economy barometer. Yeah, that's a good point. And, you know, I think the other point to be made here is that uh, roughly half of the people in the survey think rates are going up. Those are the folks that are going to drive rates. Yes. Um, and to some of the folks that are probably telling us that they don't expect to see a change, they could be looking at some longer-term relationships and maybe their, their rental agreements aren't up in the coming year and so forth. But the folks that expect to see those rates go up are probably going to be the ones that drive the market. And then we have to remember that we're sitting in the eastern corn belt here where, where crop conditions have been pretty solid uh, in 2021. There's, 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 there's parts of the uh, northern plains and, and also Minnesota uh, where that's not the case. And so maybe there's not as much pressure uh, when you get into some of those regions to increase cash rents. So, Michael, uh, we asked some questions on this month's survey about cover crops. We thought it would be kind of a good time of year to do that. A lot of people are, uh, over the course of the summer, putting in place plans to use cover crops uh, for the fall. Um, so we'll just kind of go through some of those results. Uh, about two-thirds of the people in the survey this month, roughly 65%, said they had either used cover crops in the past or were currently using cover crops, and more specifically, 41% of the people in the survey said that they currently use cover crops on at least a portion of their acreage. Um, were you surprised by those numbers? I didn't think they'd be quite that high, uh, and so I was a little surprised at those numbers. How about you? I was definitely surprised. Uh, as I travel around the Corn Belt, you know, you, and you just look at acreage, you don't see that kind of acreage under cover crops. And of course, we got to that a little later in the survey, and I think we've got some numbers that maybe help explain that. But um, nearly half of the people that uh, said they uh, used cover crops, 47% of them, said they began planting cover crops within the last five years. 
on the other hand, of the respondents that have been planting cover crops have been doing it for more than 10 years. So we, we kind of have this a little bit of a bimodal distribution, right, with respect to a lot of people have tried cover crops pretty recently. There's a much smaller group of people that have been using them for a long time. And I, I use the 10-year cutoff, but actually there's some folks that have been using it closer to 20 years or more, right? Yes, there were some people 20, 30 years have been using cover crops, not in all their acreage. We're going to get to that uh, that, that point, but, but at least some of their acreage for a long period of time. This one here, I was quite surprised that there was 29% said they had been doing this for 10 years or more. I thought they'd be a little smaller than that. I knew there had been some people been doing this for a long time, uh, but not not uh, as many uh, as what we found in this survey. And so then we did ask a question, if they'd been using cover crops, um, what percentage of their acreage are they using cover crops on? And this was probably revealing with respect to people aren't using cover crops on every acre they farm. 59% of the cover crop users said they plant cover crops on 25% or less of their total acreage. And I think that really says to me a couple of things. One is that some of these folks are probably still at the experimental stage. They're trying to learn about cover crops. And the other one is people are kind of uh, maybe picking and choosing with respect to which of their farm acreage fields um, actually need to be in cover crops, maybe because of erosion issues, maybe because they're proximity to a water source, et cetera. So what was your take on that? Yeah, I think that's definitely the case, Jim. And, and the fact that only 10% uh, reported using cover crops in over 75% or more of their acreage, I think that's quite telling. Uh, you know, there is a relatively small group that are putting this on every acre. Yeah, there's, and we ran some of those folks at conferences, right? I th that's some of the folks we talked to, and they tell us that they're planning on virtually all of their acreage. In fact, I think some of the responses on some other surveys indicate that. When you get those folks that are above 75%, there's a good chance they're probably approaching 100% of their acreage, um, as opposed to the group that's maybe on 25% or less. This, I think a lot of those are probably still at the experimental stage. One of the things that we did not, uh, you know, because we had a, you know, only a limited number of questions we could ask with regard to cover crops, uh, it would be it would have been really interesting to tie this perhaps with tillage. I would think some of those people that are doing the no-till or, or, or drastically reduced till uh, would be would have a tendency to be using cover crops on more of their acres. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, we did ask them why they choose to plant cover crops. So if you plant cover crops, why do you do it? And the most common responses in order were number one was improved soil health, number two was improved erosion control, and number three was improved water quality. Um, those didn't surprise me too much. How about you? Not really. I mean, we had crop yields in there, uh, in, you know, in, worded in, an, in another question. So it wasn't that common for people to say both soil health and, uh, you know, higher crop yields. And so that was a fairly common response. But soil health uh, was overwhelming, overwhelmingly the most common response. And of course, that's how it's being promoted most heavily. So it wasn't too surprising to get that back as a response. So uh, one of the options out there, though, was, um, and we wanted to learn more about this, was the relationship of usage of cover crops to carbon sequestration contracts. And those carbon contracts requiring the use of cover crops, that's a pretty new phenomenon. That's only been around for a relatively short span of time. So we weren't sure how many people would tell us that that, that was an issue for them. 10% of the people said that that was one of the reasons why they chose to plant cover crops. And given how new that is, I was a little surprised that we got that many responses. How about you? I didn't think it would be that high. There must be people planting cover crops thinking uh, that they're going to enter some kind of uh, you know, carbon contract in the next one to two to three years. 
Well, I, I would probably disagree with that because if they yeah. do it before they sign the contract, <laughs> right, they're they're going to yeah. fall into a trap yeah. there. So yeah. I suspect those are yeah. people that may maybe signed a, uh, a carbon contract, at least on a small portion of their acreage. You know, one of the farms we had a chance to work with this summer on the farm management tour here at Purdue was very interesting. Um, they were in that situation. They had signed up a portion of their acreage under a carbon contract, and they were using uh, cover crops on that portion of their acreage. In fact, it was uh, kind of a, a combination decision for them. They were interested in, in using cover crops, and signing the carbon contract was a way to get an incentive to actually yeah. put carbon uh, cover crops in, right? Let me reword what I, what I meant. Maybe they're trying to, trying to use cover crops to see how this would work if they sign a, car, you know, a, a contract. I mean, if you sign a carbon contract, you don't have to do it on every single acre. And so I, I think there is some experimenting going on uh, just, just related to you know, these carbon, carbon markets. Well, that wraps up our discussion today. So for more details about the Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer, go to our website, purdue.edu slash agbarometer. I encourage you to join us for our next Corn and Soybean Outlook webinar following the release of USDA's um, September World Ag Supply Demand Estimates. That comes out on, I think, the 10th of September, and our webinar will be on September 13th. Uh, so the report comes out on a Friday, and we're doing the webinar on Monday. That'll be at 12 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, and you can register for that at our website for the Center for Commercial Ag, which is purdue.edu slash commercial ag. So with that, I encourage you to share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. And on behalf of Michael Langemar and the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture, I'm Jim Mintert. Thanks for listening. <laughs>